listening to Skylight, the Skylight Books podcast. Skylight Books is a general interest bookstore in the Los Feliz neighborhood in Los Angeles. You can shop with us from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. or visit us online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Follow along at Skylight Books Instagram and Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and now on to the episode. Hello, my lovely and beautiful listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books Podcast, and I'm your host, Lance Morgan. Today, I'm so, so thrilled to welcome Molly Peacock to read from her new book, Flower Diary, in which Mary Heister Reed Pants tra- paints, travels, marries, and opens a door, followed by a conversation with her and Dolly- Donna Bailey Nurse. Before I introduce them, I want to remind you that Skylight Books is now open for in-store browsing, but we are following the current CDC mandate, so please, please please bring your masks and be respectful to your fellow customers and the staff there. You can also always shop online 24-7 at www.skylightbooks.com for curbside pickup or shipping. Molly Peacock is a biographer and a distinguished poet. A fellow of the Leon Levy Center for Biography, her newest is Flower Diary, Mary Heister Reed Paints, Travels, Marries, and Opens, a door from EZW Press, a book she spent eight years writing and researching. Her previous biography, The Paper Garden, Mrs. Delaney Begins Her Life's Work at at 72, was named a Book of the Year in Canada, Ireland, and the UK. Peacock's latest poetry collection is The Analyst Poems from W.W. Noren and Company. Former president of the Poetry Society of America, she's the co-founder of Poetry in Motion on New York subways and buses, as well as the founder of the Best Canadian Poetry. She teaches online for the Unterberg Poetry Center at the 92nd Street Y in New York City and lives in Toronto. Donna Bailey Nurse is a Canadian literary critic and writer. She was curator of an evening with poet Terence Hayes at the Gardiner Museum in the literary series Femme Noirs that accompanied the Michelaine Thomas exhibition at the Art Gallery of Ontario. Nurse is the author of two books of criticism and the editor of Revival, an anthology of Black Canadian writing. She is a, contribu- a contributor of The Walrus, The Literary Review of Canada, and The Globe and Mail, and a columnist for CBC Radio's The Next Chapter. Nurse is currently at work on a Black Canadian history, part of a two-book deal with HarperCollins Canada. Mary and Donna, thank you so much for having for being on our podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to hear this wonderful conversation between the two of you. Thank you for having us. It's wonderful. No, no problem. We're so glad to be here, Lance. No, I'm so glad to have you both. Uh, Molly, yep, before you guys go into your conversation, I know you have a reading for us, Molly. I do. I do. I'm going to read from the very beginning of Flower Diary, in which Mary to read, paints, travels, marries, and opens the door. Perfect. Take oh, it <laughs> The open door. She left a door ajar, slipping through a threshold into the almost impossible to balance world of love and art. Over 300 paintings and a lifelong commitment to a partner. She's one of the artists from the past who made it possible to live and love in the present. Often we who look for models of creativity learn the names of those who banged down doors and wrecked their own and others' lives. And a handle is a word that belonged to this woman who made still lifes like diary pages and landscapes like dream logs. She planned and coped, sized up situations, then seized moments, managing a subtle menage with her painter husband, George Agnew Reed, and their talented student, Mary Rinch, in a stiff society, all the while making five transatlantic journeys 
and creating some of the most devastatingly expressive works you've likely never seen, signing them, Mary Heaster Reed. She was born on April 10th in 1854, died on October 4th, 1921, just a hundred years ago this week. And she leapt into real painting, not just ladies' watercolors, at 29, when her dress went nearly from her ears to her ankles and close along her arms to the wrists. The registrar at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts wrote her name in a steady copper plate hand. Then, in the all-female oil painting class, she watched a naked woman climb on a riser and turn her back. Scrunched behind her canvas, Mary crowded for a view among the other women at this art school led by the genius and so-called libertine Thomas Aikens. Aikens allowed his female students to learn to paint by looking at bodies like their own. But later, Mary would rarely paint the human figure. Instead, she injected that figure into the flesh of flowers, curves of jars, and spines of trees. She painted blousy, sensuous, billowing roses trapped at the necks in vases as if they were silk-gowned beauties grabbed by their corsets. Pewter jugs as solid as iron-clad wills, evergreens pointed in fierce declarations, each element fully in possession of its body. And she positioned those bodies in relation to one another. And I'm going to take you to the very end of her life in her final studio in Witchwood Park, Toronto. An autumn chill in 1921. A fireside in Upland Cottage, the arts and crafts fantasy of a house designed by George Agnew Reed for two working artists, himself and his wife, Mary Heaster Reed. The couple worked side by side in these his and hers studios in a magical artist community in what's now the city of Toronto, but then Witchwood Park. George's studio was gigantic, big enough for huge murals. Mary's comfortable studio with its cozy fireplace and ingle nook led to the dining room and kitchen. That day, two young painters arrived to visit and to help. One was Marion Long, the other was Mary Evelyn Rinch, who lived in a studio house, also designed by George, just beyond the garden behind their house. Miss Long and Miss Rinch were there because Mary was ailing and Gina had plagued her for several years and now she was dying. It was to Rinch, the shadow Mary, 23 years younger, that Mary Heaster Reed is said to have whispered an instruction that would never be entered in a will. The older painter verbally bequeathed her husband to the younger painter. George will be needing a wife. And I think she is said to have said to the shadow Mary, who was in her early 40s, it should be you. Wow. Thank you so much, Molly. That was phenomenal. And uh, for the audience, it's phenomenal like that all the way through. I've read it twice now, and I'll be reading it again. It's just that good. Um, so let's get going, Molly. I, I wanted to see if you could tell the audience uh, a little bit more about Mary Heaster Reed, her significance then and now, and also a little bit about her background, which is quite illustrious. I mean, how did that background allow her to create a life as a female artist in the 19th century? That's quite a bit. You, you know, it's, 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 it's an incredible question. I mean, it's the, it's the central question um, that in some ways drives this whole biography, which isn't quite a traditional biography. It's a biography with three intertwined lives 
and it's a biography with some 21st century lives reflecting on those 19th and early 20th century lives. So it's, 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 a, um, it, it's a juicy book in that respect. So how is it that a, an artist like Mary Cassette ended up living with her parents um, in Paris, in Paris and, and not having a, a, a full life, you know, with a, um, a, a, you know, living, living separately in her own house, in her own marriage? Or why is it that Thomas Aiken's wife, Susan McDowell, stopped painting the minute she married him? So Mary used to read, had a great example in her mother. Uh, her mother, her father died when she was only five months old. And as the later on, as the Civil War began coming north and going toward Gettysburg, her mother takes her two daughters and moves to Wisconsin and raises these two girls in Wisconsin. And she never remarries. And she has her own house there in Beloit, Wisconsin. And she had a, didn't have a, you know, she wasn't, I think, very wealthy, but she had enough money to live on her own and even lend money to people there. So Mary grew up in a household where there was no Victorian baritone telling her what to do right. <laughs> and also no father. So then when her mother passed away, when she was 21, she went back to the Philadelphia area and didn't have she had family but no that not that insular set of parents saying this is what you've got to do instead she had a mother who had encouraged her as a painter and she had an older sister who suddenly up and converted to catholicism went to europe stayed in Spain for the rest of her life becoming the mother superior of a convent in Spain so she had a sister who made this incredible uh, spiritual choice. And I think all those examples allowed her to make her choices in Philadelphia. And I think it's not insignificant that she was six years older than her husband. So she had a little bit of extra maturity there and a little bit of extra clout, maybe. <laughs> I also wanted to see if you would tell a bit about the kind of family she came from. Because when we say that she went to Wisconsin, it's like she's, you know, really a Midwest girl, but in a way, not really. She oh, no. came from the East. She had that kind of illustrious background. Can you talk yes. about it? And so, I mean, an intellectual pursuits, artistic pursuits were not out of the question. That's absolutely true. Her background, uh, she, she's a descendant um, from a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Her family were the Muhlenbergs, Mussers, Heisters, uh, who came to the United States uh, to establish the Lutheran Church uh, and to, to help establish botany in North America. Um, her great-grandfather was called the American Linnaeus, uh, a, a, he was a specialist in plants, and uh, the her, her family fought in the American Revolutionary War. They certainly um, fought for the Union in the Civil War, and those were families of prominence. When I said she didn't have tremendous wealth, I, I don't think she did, but she had a real social cachet. So she didn't come just out of nowhere. Uh, she came out of a real, uh, um, an American social anchor. What was her significance th then and now? Like if you were going to just introduce her today, what would you say her significance was? Um, well, our, to, yeah. uh, I think that her significance is that she maintained three amazing painting styles, tonalism, impressionism and realism she combined them all to her own and she began to represent her emotional life as they as it invested in flowers and in objects and later on in trees 
so that she was called a sympathetic realist, or we might call her an empathetic realist now. And she, uh, although she was an American and uh, certainly painted in the United States as a member of the Antiora Artist Colony and the North American Arts and Crafts Movement, she also lived and painted in Canada and did this uh, remarkable work representing Canada in the, at the Chicago Exposition, the Louisiana Exposition, the Buffalo Exposition. So she's, she was well-regarded, well-reviewed, and she managed to maintain a relationship with uh, George Agnew Reed, who was much better known in his day than she was, even though, you know, as a woman painter, she did great. Uh, but he was, uh, I mean, he sold probably at uh, 10 times, sometimes even 100 times more than she sold in, in, in terms of prices of their paintings. I'm going to talk a bit more about him a little bit more later, but I wanted to ask you, when you say this, you say the most intriguing things I could like stop every sentence and ask you. <laughs> but there's one thing you say right off the top, and I just want you to explain a little bit more what you mean by this. She left the door ajar. I think that she was one of the people who opened a door for later painters. When Georgia O'Keeffe is painting Flowers and Trees, Mary Heaster Reed is one of the foremothers that she is reacting against. Um, I mean, we don't, we're not, you know, all of, all of us who have mother figures know that it's a tangled relationship. And or who were mothers. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. But so she's in this generation. She was the first. She's in the first generation of women artists who are, are married and making art. She made over 300 oil paintings. And let me tell you, I mean, well, you know this, Donna, for, from your own experience, uh, you know, as a writer, uh, as a critic, it's really hard to maintain an intimate domestic relationship with another person and make art at the same time. So she opens the door to that. And then she opens the door to a, a woman's ambition. You know, <laughs> ambition really is simply self-regard, I feel. And she had that self-regard. It was quiet. I mean, I think of her as a stealth feminist, you know, <laughs> um, somebody who uh, was flying under the radar of a deeply sexist society in order to do what she did. But she, op she opened the door for the rest of us. And as we struggle with the same, very same issues in the 21st century, we know we can look at her life and ask ourselves, well, how did she do that? And that was part of the impulse for writing this book. You know, I, I wanna, right after this, I'm gonna ask a bit more about George, her husband, but you did touch on her influences. And I think one of the things I love about this book, I mean, I just wish everybody could see this book, rush out, <laughs> rush out to, <laughs> it's such a gorgeous production. It's such a beautiful object in and of itself. The reproductions of the paintings are just, oh, they're so, they're luminous, right? I mean, so, um, but what I, what I love about that is just this, you know, this beautiful work that I can, small enough to carry with me with a huge world inside it. And what I wanted to know is uh, how does this book contain, it contains so much life and it contains so much art. And I learned so much more about, I'm a lay person. So I love to learn so much more about the art world in this language. And can you just, you touched a little bit on her stylistic influences, uh, Jap Japanism and, and tonalism. And if you could just take a few minutes to talk just a little bit more about these influences on her work. Sure, sure. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm happy to do that. I'm going to make a, a little side leap into okay, something sure. else you said, which is the production of this book. Um, this, this is a book for readers. It's not an art book. Um, it's a biography, um, but it is produced as if 
um, with art book values. So when so there's an illustration, there are 34 illustrations, one at the beginning of each chapter. And the paper is really luxurious. So those illustrations really pop out and there are beautiful end papers. And it's like it, this, the, the ECW Press designed and produced this book as this little treasure of a volume. Uh, and it's a, it's a tribute to Mary Heaster Reed and, and absolutely an honor to be an author, uh, to have a publisher who put this much effort <laughs> into the design of a book to the point where there are these little interludes where I'm in the 21st century thinking about her marriage and her life uh, and those are in a different color. So the interludes are in this pale bay leaf green. Uh, and when I first saw this, I, I, I have to say it was, I was shrieking uh, with delight uh, uh, because of the production job. Okay, now tonalism. Tonalism, it came about, uh, it was instigated by James Whistler. And um, he famously made this, uh, something called the 10 o'clock speech where uh, at 10 o'clock at night, uh, he announced uh, what tonalism was. And that is a style of painting that is like creating music. So when uh, tonalist paintings are often called harmony in such and such and gives, gives the color, um, uh, symphony in such and such. Uh, you, it uses musical terms and it uses uh, times of day that are low lit, um, twilight, sunrise, uh, rain, gray, uh, cloudy days. I don't, you know, even if there were even, even smog, all of those uh, kind of outer weather that translates into inner weather and a whole set of emotions. And, uh, and Mary used to read just, she adored that and has a whole number of tonalist paintings and carried that idea of poetic emotions, music, musical ideas in painting and poetic emotions into her work. She was regularly called a poet in paint. And as a poet, I cottoned on to that right away. She was a reader of poetry. There are po almost poetic rhythms uh, in the, the ways she presents her flowers. And uh, so there's tonalism and Japanisma uh, is another late 19th century uh, phenomenon. And, um, Americans in uh, 1876, when there were, the centennial happened in Philadelphia, had never seen art from Asia. So suddenly there's a Japan exhibit and all of these North Americans can come and suddenly there's, they're, they're seeing this art they've never seen before and they fall in love. I mean, who's not gonna fall in love with all of these marvelous, marvelous objects and styles of pottery. Uh, and uh, she's able to obtain some of these things. She obtains a ginger jar. And then later on when she goes to Paris, at that moment, the Yukioi prints or those, the Japanese prints that we think of uh, by Hiroshiga and Hokusai, things that are Im images that we are, are just sort of regularly in our lives now were brand, brand new in Paris, but had just come down in price enough for artists like Mary, like Bonnard, uh, like uh, Van Gogh um, to buy these prints and have them and see how they translated a realistic volume into two dimensions and lines. And she also was in Paris at the same time. Uh, she was a neighbor of Eugene Grasset in a little artist community. And Grasset was the father of Art Nouveau. Uh, and I, I can't describe those images for you right now, but I 
think that many people out there will have a little bit of an inkling of Art Nouveau. And it depends on those swirly organic lines that you do see turn up in Mary's paintings as well. Is she most known for her flowers or not necessarily? Yes, she is most known for her flowers. As a matter of fact, people considered her a flower painter as she was praised as a flower painter, but she also painted trees. She also painted interiors. She did wonderful, wonderful paintings of her studio, um, the various studios she had of her fireplace and always these rooms are so inviting. There are always pillows in those rooms. She also painted uh, tables and often a single chair. And we have to remember that women didn't do that many self-portraits at the time. So her self-portraiture really comes out of painting her rooms and we get a sense of her personality from those rooms she painted. What about the flowers? Would you say the same thing? Um, what do the flowers, because you know, they're not like any flower paintings I've ever seen. So, <laughs> something so human, I mean, or it's more than just flower life, it's lifelike, right? Yes, it is, it is lifelike. For her, flowers, uh, uh, absolutely, they were embodiments of human figures. And these are some, some of the most electric and some of the sexiest flower paintings that you've ever seen before the 20th century. We're going, we're go, we're going back here now into the 1880s, 1890s, um, in, into the 1910s and looking at these flowers. And I do uh, uh, have to say that they do reflect different periods of her life. So when they take on this, this very talented student, Mary Rinch, Mary Evelyn Rinch, uh, and, and bring her to their summer studio at, in the Antiora Art Colony, suddenly she paints this magnificent uh, small painting called Three Roses, where two roses are flopping together out of this milk jug. The third rose is flopping off to the side with some petals that look like teardrops on the ground. And you see the, the wrenching bewilderment of a love triangle invested in three flowers in this milk jug. Now, am I going too far? Well, <laughs> You're I, yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, I, I will say that I have created chronologies of her life, her husband's life, and Mary Rinch's life. I know when, what they were painting, where they were, and when these triangulated flower paintings occurred. And, and I, I don't feel like I'm, I don't feel like I'm overinterpreting here, uh, especially since at all different points in her life. Uh, she's painting uh, sometimes exuberantly. The flowers are exuberant and electric, leaping out of the vases and the bowls. Sometimes they are moody, um, subdued uh, roses in still life. They always, to me though, always the roses look like they're wearing negligees. These, pe these petals are so silky so sensuous uh you you just have have sometimes have the sense of looking at a rumpled bed beautiful yeah i think we better get to that husband then <laughs> I, i'm intrigued by her husband now that you know i, I recognize him I, I recognize his work as a canadian I, I just recognize that i've seen it all my life sure and yeah not really known who it was um, can you talk to us a little bit about how they met and fell in love with the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts? And yes. And then also, yeah, we'll talk about that. And I'm, and then I also want to go on. So we want to talk about that. Then I also want to go on and talk about, um, you know, why you spend so much time on that marriage in this book. Okay. All right. Uh, so they meet at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts where, which is the only school in the entire world, not in Paris could, could a woman do this, 
where a woman could paint from a nude model. But this is scandalous. There are only three years when this is happening because they're going to kick Thomas Aikens out for allowing this. And not only that, uh, the, the models that they could hire, because it was so, so tough for a woman to earn any extra money at these times. I mean, basically, you did it by you could you could sew for other people. Uh, you could do uh, some of the private education thing in a, in a governess way, uh, so, and you could model. But the models were, they were older women, and they were often women who, who uh, were, would be living on the street, much more ravaged bodies. Mm -hmm. So these younger women needed to look at a young body to see what it looked like in order to paint. So they would undress for one another. Uh, and the deal was, if I take off my clothes for the group, then the group, uh, other people have to take off their clothes for me and we will model for one another. This, it, this is in an atmosphere where you are dressed, you are clothed from your ankles all the way up to your chin. And just imagine, uh, let's see, imagine yourself wearing three underwire bras, one over the other around your waist. That's the corset, okay? So for these young women to take off these clothes and paint one another, this sensuous atmosphere is just pulsating. And the men are also painting male nude models, female nude models, this is an extremely, this is a, a highly sexualized atmosphere for a very repressed moment. And this is the atmosphere in which George and Mary fall in love. The minute they graduate, they get married, they head straight for a, a bar, an economy steamship, uh, uh, and, you know, just sort of like bargain steamship <laughs> trips to Europe. They go to Europe because they, want to they want to see they want to see these paintings that they've heard about because it's not like they're being reproduced in uh uh, uh special color reproductions in the 1880s that's not happening so they go off to see the real thing okay um i think you know their marriage is it's a large part of the book and I think that very often in, you know, artist biographies, particularly of men, you, you barely see the spouse, yeah. no matter what the spouse <laughs> and, uh, I And I also, okay, so yeah, I want to talk about their very sympathetic, you know, cohabitation there and, and respectful, artistic. And also, if you don't mind me bringing this up, <laughs> you yourself with Michael, um, the, the late scholar, Michael Groden, you had that, for me, when I'm, when I'm reading it, because, you know, spoiler alert, I, I already know Molly. <laughs> but, um, if, yeah, it's, it's a celebration of a certain kind of marriage. And that, you know, you do speak about your marriage as well as their marriage. Throughout the book. So can you talk to me about their, their marriage and why it is such a part of the book? It, it, they, they had what was called a companionate marriage. That too was innovative. Um, so the whole idea that you could be married to a companion person. And George Agner Reed was super talented, super ambitious. It took a lot for him to get from Wingham, Ontario, this little farm community, all the way down to Philadelphia to study art. That was a big deal. And, and uh, they, there was never a question that they wouldn't be painting side by side. And his respect for her he carried on. I mean, he as he became president of various art organizations, and uh, he was quite a, a political guy. He was a big networker. Uh, she she came along for his ride, so to speak. I mean, uh, women couldn't become full members um, of certain artists art associations, but at least um, when he was in charge, they were admitted. Um, they had some sort of ranking 
in, in these art associations. So there, so there is that, and she modeled for him many, many times. He painted her throughout his painting life, but um, you have to sacrifice a lot of time to model for someone, and she did. She sacrificed a lot of her own painting time for him. She was the one who threw him parties when his paintings got accepted to um, uh, uh, big exhibitions. He was the one who showed uh, in New York. He showed in England. He showed in Paris. She did not to do those things. Uh, um, I mean, she did show at the international ex exhibitions, but those particular kind of uh, guy meet guy in the art world invitations, she had not, she had none of that. Yeah. So it was for their day, um, I, there was a great, it, it was egalitarian. From, from our point of view, we see the sexism in it, we see his supremacy, we see the ways in which she suppressed herself. But for the time, again, it was a door opener. And I thought about their companionship. Uh, and when he built a, a house for them, he built the house around side-by-side -side studios. Uh, just in the architecture of their, uh, the architecture reflected their relationship. And I was lucky enough to have a 28 year marriage uh, side by side uh, with uh, an eminent joy scholar, Michael Groden. And we, uh, were th we thought about her marriage and, uh, and George, because I invited him to follow in their footsteps with me. So I said, let's go to Spain on the Access Canada. Um, I, I funded a trip to Spain to replicate her travelogue that she wrote in Spain. Let's go to Paris and see their studios. This, uh, um, an, another trip uh, that was funded for my husband got us to Paris. Uh, we, went to see all of their spaces in Toronto and we and we thought about well what is our life like compared to what their life is like and there's a, a note of sadness in there as well and that is we did this toward the end of my husband's life uh, in fact he passed away just as I was completing this book and the press waited uh, for me, held up the production so that I could write a couple of those final interludes uh, to talk about our relationship at the very end, because that was also mirroring George and Mary's relationship as she passed away and then he lived on. So it was an extremely emotional experience um, for my husband and me and and for me now to recollect this and 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 uh, oh what can I say weave all the threads there are many this is this book is a tapestry and uh it it, it, it just I look back I look at it and I think what an honor it was to to be able to have those experiences Thank you so much for sharing that. That's just, thank you so much. Um, I don't know if we should bring up Mary at this moment, but. <laughs> oh, the other Mary. <laughs> the other Mary. So you do bring up that, you know, we should let everybody know that they both taught here in, in Toronto. Yeah. Not too far from where I used to live, you live still. Mm -hmm. And not too far from where I live now is where they moved, which yes. was. Yes. And, uh, you know, so a young lady, Mary, Mary, Mary Evelyn Wrench, sorry, a student who was a student of George's. And then when they went to their summer colony, which we haven't touched on yet, I don't know if you have time, but she accompanied them with the, like a class trip <laughs> type of thing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then eventually, you know, but, you know, he was painting things that were reminiscent of her. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a sense of an, of an attraction that you noted. Mm -hmm. and so one of the things I thought you spoke about is that was so interesting is that the seductiveness of that um, student teacher bond. I mean, yes. perhaps especially in painting, which is about looking and yes. 
Yes. Could you talk talk a bit about that? Yeah. Um, uh, when uh, Mary Rinch, and it's important to say that she was really talented yeah, and con right. and continued painting, and her work is marvelous. Yes. Yes. Uh, and and of the next generation, she was painting much more modernist paintings uh, than George or uh, or Mary used to read. So when she's she's eighteen when she becomes George's student, uh, he immediately paints a portrait of her. You can see the affection in the portrait. Uh, she uh, her father died when she was quite young. He's a father figure. Uh, he uh, uh, then, you know, becomes that uh, beloved teacher. And we are all now in the 21st century aware of the dynamic, the power dynamic of those relationships. Mm -hmm. And they, what, it, what it engenders in a young woman to have a powerful, sexy mentor who's painting her portrait, I mean, and who then finds her studio next to his studio, um, then and is taking her to Antiora, a fabulous arts and crafts art colony in the Catskill Mountains started by Candace Wheeler, associate of Lewis Comfort Tiffany, mother of North American design. So she's there in that atmosphere and She's being taught by her mentor's wife, who is also then a role model and a mentor, more of a, a bit of an older sister figure, a mother figure, a rival. Um, all of these roles are being played out all at once and they're subtle, they are overlapping uh, my sense is that when the young Mary Rinch gets too close into this marriage, that that is exactly the moment at which the uh, older reads pack up and leave for Europe. And that is a pattern that happens over and over again in their lives. Uh, so that, um, and, and, and from the young woman's point of view, as they leave, she can come into her own identity. It, 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 it's subtle and complex. It's deeply sexist, but at the same time, Mary Rinch is allowed to grow. She comes into her own talent as well. Um, and Mary used to read, then begins a rapprochement with the younger painter. And by the time World War I comes along, the, the Great War, all of these, their personal relationships uh, suddenly are in the context of a huge world war. And they start painting to show their paintings together. The two women show their paintings together because they're raising money for, uh, for the troops for the Great War. They put things aside. It's, it, they there's a way in which a kind of mentorship friendship um, su supersedes the rest of it. And somehow or another, they get comfortable with the three-part romance. And I should say, nobody left any diaries. Um, nobody left any truly personal letters. You just have the feeling that there was a certain amount of, I, I feel like I say in the book, I think there's a whiff of smoke of some burning some things here. Uh, so we can't say exactly what's happening, but through uh, other writing, through, their, through the chronology, through where they are, through their proximity, through their life choices, we see uh, a kind of, a, a, a comfortable, not all in one house, but next door to one another menage that was not acrimonious. Young Mary Rinch did a miniature portrait of Mary Heaster Reed. It is a loving, uh, tender portrait. However, Molly, at the end, I mean, you know. And 
Day. There's the end. They, now they marry. Like he yeah. does marry her. I he mean, marries her. Uh oh, I see land. <laughs> Okay, I have yes. more and I'm gonna go, I'm still gonna go through them. Okay. Um, critics, I, I want to talk a bit more about you. Critics might describe this biography as realistic. And and of course, because it's true, so that's realistic. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but at the same time, I think it it is experimental. You're mentioning that. And I think it veers into the realm of naturalism, you know, and naturalism in, in literature where you look at the human human being, also the animal aspects of the human being. Um, bodily functions. You mentioned things like the use of a chamber pot, menstrual cloths, various methods of birth control. You tell us something, I don't know if anybody knows this, maybe I was the only one who didn't know that women's knickers were slit at the crotch. Yes. <laughs> so they could <laughs> but you know, why do you include those sorts of details? I do because I want to make them alive for us. Um, and, and, and my research into, say, 19th century birth control, which was substantial, and you could buy, buy these little vaginal nets in uh, advertising newspapers. Uh, this is, of course, before the Comstock laws uh, came in and, and eliminated all of that. But there were lots of, uh, if, if I felt if I could describe the life of the senses. What did they smell? You know, of course, they smelled the horse dung as it hit the cobblestones. They smelled the fish as it came into the in, into the the docks um, of Lake Ontario when they went down to buy the fish. They what what did what what did they hear? Uh, what and and what did they touch? What did they feel? And that's why. Uh, menstrual cloths, uh, you know, get into the book uh, clothing, the, the, the whole uh, life of the senses that they lived so that people reading it could have a sensuous apprehension of their lives. Okay, this is a similar question and it's the last question, Lance. <laughs> um, I wanted to, there's this wonderful part in the book where Michael, your husband, is, uh, you're talking about the way that you two talk about art, and he came in and he's asking you about something you've written. He's saying, why this? What that? How this? And you say, you write, well, I'm not threatened by that, basically. I'm not threatened by that. And you say the most amazing thing. I just want to say it correctly. I wrote it down. Um, okay. You say that doesn't bother you when someone questions you about your art. You say that you your trust in your imagination is as rooted as an oak. And, and that's what I feel. I feel the confidence of your, when I'm reading this book, I'm with somebody who is confident in what she's sharing with me and in her ability to craft and, and you know, I come to her. Like you really know how to tell this story. Where do you get that confidence? I mean, I want that confidence that your imagination <laughs> is as rooted as an oak. How? I I have lived by my imagination as a poet, um, and I have written uh, for I have written for decades as a poet, and I have studied my own creative process, of course. But also, I've been the mentor to many many different writers. Um, and and watch and observe their creative processes. I feel confident in describing the creative processes of Mary Hester Reed and her husband and her friend because I am extrapolating from all from from, from the decades of experience I've had uh, in observing my own creativity and in intimate conversations with many, many other people about theirs. So I just, I feel like um, my, my instincts about what it means to produce art are on solid ground. They're, they are absolutely rooted and there I do feel a confidence. What I produce sometimes, I mean, I have to leave that for other people to judge, but the way to go about it, finding the time for it and doing it, I know about that. Thank you so much, Molly. And, and thank you so much to Skylight for, for having us. 
Um, Donna, what a wonderful conversation. I have admired your criticism ever since I started reading it, um, maybe tw uh, 20 years ago. Um, <laughs> or shouldn't I, shouldn't, I, shouldn't I say how long? Thank you so uh, much. That couldn't mean more coming from anybody. Thank you so much. Uh, Thank you to the two of and you for, I don't know, just a wonderful conversation. You guys are both just amazing to hear talk to and just uh, the, 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 the just friendship between you guys. It's just amazing to hear. So thank you both for being on our podcast. Well, Lance, um, thank you for making this possible. And I think both Donna and I want to thank Skylight Books for this podcast uh, for and for selling Flower Diary in yes. your very bookstore. Yes, everyone listen, Hooray. go to Skylight or your local bookstore to go buy Flower Diary because it is currently on sale. You could see it right in the front of the store in our podcast um, display Ooh. right now. So just there's no reason to not buy it, right? There's no reason to not go out there and buy it. Oh my God. But go out, get a copy. And thank you again to Molly and Donna. Would you guys, do you guys have anything you would like to say to um, the independent bookstore community as a whole or, and just like, or your local bookstore too? Well, how, how about this? Thank you, every indie bookstore. Uh, across this continent, you know, um, <laughs> absolutely, uh, and um, just thank you, ECW Press here in Canada, uh, and uh, um, I, I guess my well, my gratitude as an author is profound to all of you. And no, that's that's great, Donna. You. Well, I mean, I don't know if I can talk about that, you know, absolutely. I mean, what will we be without our indie bookstores? You know, they just keep us alive and keep us going and keep us thriving. So thank you. No, thank you both. And yeah, to our listeners, thank you again for coming back to, to you know, listening to another fantastic episode. And if you're new, thank you for coming. And please, please, please listen to our, let's come back again. Listen to another episode. We are so grateful to you. All, to everyone listening, you have a beautiful and amazing rest of your day, and thank you. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.